1: Live, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argore, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show into our library of weekly archive shows, it is our goal to make a difference. And uh, so, say uh, good, morning. good morning to all of you if you're listening uh, on the archives or live today. Um, we're we're uh, taping our last show for uh, September as we um, come into the fall season, and we have. Quite a few of uh, a, a very good lineup of, of of shows into the fall as always, and if you would like to suggest a topic, please go to uh, Donagore dot com and there is a um, sort of a suggestion um web page and you can go in there and suggest a show for the future so i I highly uh, recommend you going that route because sometimes we get some very good ideas from other people as well, and uh, saves on the brain power for myself. Um, today we have a, a little bit of a, um, a different kind of show, um, not so much crime-related but tragedy-related, and I've been trying to um, get a show together on this topic for well over a year. And I'm so glad that through my connections with Dr. Bill Pettit, um, we we have with us an esteemed guest, uh, Dr. Gregory Shangold, um, an emergency room doctor um, in many of the Harford area hospitals. And he, and he also is uh, affiliated with the Connecticut Medical Society and, and um, uh, the American College of Emergency uh, Physicians and, and uh, the, the um, State of Connecticut Alcohol and, and Drug Policy Committee, uh, et cetera, in order to lend the uh, medical perspective and what's really going on. So um, in just a second we'll introduce him live and in person, but want to say good morning to Ryla, and, and um, I'm very happy to be introducing this show. I think it's very important. Don't you
0: agree? Oh I totally agree. I think you know i i am really excited and interested to have this information come to light because we're we're seeing every day in the news people actually dying from opioid addiction and addiction to heroin, which is something you know in and back in the day it was it was in the back rooms in the back alleys and and you know most people were not affected by it, but now it's everywhere. It's crossed every socioeconomic line and in the country. And we're finding that it's, it's, it's affecting everyone in one way or another. Um, and it's affecting people who actually need prescribed Mm -hmm. painkillers, but also affecting those who are using these, these drugs recreationally. So, um, this is this is going to be a very important show, in my opinion, to get this information out to the public.
1: Absolutely, and I'm, um, I'm hoping that we can perhaps use it as a teaching tool for many people. So, anyway, with um, and I agree totally with everything you just stated. Um, uh, without further ado, uh, Dr. Gregory Shangold, uh, welcome to Shattered Lives. Thanks so much for being part of our radio family today.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me on, Donna. Uh, it's my pleasure to join you and, and give you my perspective from an, uh, an emergency department.
1: Uh, absolutely, um, and I there are so many perspective, perspectives to this this uh, problem, and there's there is just not a, a it's not a one a, a one solution fits this thing because there, like I say, there's so many layers to this issue. I, I believe, but. Um, perhaps if you could give us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch in terms of your work with emergency medicine and and how, how this plays a role with your work as an emergency room physician, what can you paint a picture for us in terms of what you deal with on, on a day-to-day basis and how much of of this issue kind of takes up your everyday life?
2: So emergency physicians are on the front line of, really everything to do with medicine. And the majority of people that come to an emergency department, and recently, just on a national perspective, there are about 140 million ED visits per year. And almost half of those have to do with some sort of pain for some sort of reason. But specifically for the opiate issue, we see people that are Addicted and then overdose. We see people who come to help because of their uh, addiction before they overdose. We do see the people with chronic pain that have nowhere else to go. And we and then we see everybody with acute pain that may be starting, you know, and needs some sort of management. So all the different aspects of uh, pain are seen in the emergency department.
1: It, does this also um... – does this also relate to people who have good insurance um, as opposed to those that don't have any insurance and know where to go? Or, you know, is it both those populations?
2: You know, as we have this national debate on insurance, definitely having insurance does not equal access to care. So especially people that have Medicaid, which is basically the state insurance, often will have insurance. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
1: Title 19.
2: Correct. In, in title 19. And they have insurance, but they don't have access always to pain management doctors if they do have chronic pain or to see specialists that, that may be needed. So, cause not every physician accepts insurance, especially when you have something like Medicaid, which um, does not reimburse even for the cost of, of caring for someone. So, Having The key part there is having insurance does not equal access to care. So in the emergency department, where we see everyone, regardless of their ability to pay, um, I would say we, we do see these cross all, like Delilah was saying, across all socioeconomic and racial um, dividers. But there is a disproportion of people that do come in, it seems, with Medicaid, because they have no other access to uh, providers.
1: Okay, I I figured that was the case, but sort of wanted to clarify that. Um, so with, can we kind of start out with telling telling our audience what what is the what is the scope of this uh, crisis in terms of who are, who are the players? I mean, there's physicians, there's pharmaceutical companies, there's legislators. Who Who um, sort of – what are the pieces to this puzzle, and and what is the scope of this crisis currently?
2: So in 2016, the data that's out now suggests that 65,000 people died of drug overdoses in America. Just to put that into perspective, there was about 40,000 deaths from motor vehicle accidents and about 33,000 deaths from uh, guns. Now, of those drug overdoses, somewhere between two-thirds and 75% were from opiates. So it's the biggest portion of the drug overdoses, and those opiates can be either prescribed medications or illegally obtained medications, such as heroin, and more recently, some other synthetic versions, which you've heard of as fentanyl. And this increase is about a 21% increase from the year before, and if you go back to 1996, it, it's really been an exponential growth uh, since 96. And so that, th- this is really more of a recent phenomenon over the last 20 years.
1: So what happened in 1996 to start this exponential growth
2: spurt? So in 1996, there, were, there was a couple things that happened. One, um, OxyContin came out, and so OxyContin uh, is a long-acting opiate pill. And prior to 96, it was, opiates were really just used for people that had metastatic cancer pain. And there was different information that came out and about is it really addictive, is it not addictive, should we be using this in people that have more long-term pain, and that seemed to change in 96. Also in 96, there was this whole campaign to use pain as the fifth vital sign. So vital signs are something that you get checked whenever you go to a doctor. It includes blood pressure, your heart rate, your respiratory rate, and your temperature. And now they were saying, well, those are all objective measures, but now pain is going to be that fifth vital sign. And so... There is that on
1: a ten- scale from 1 to 10, Greg, tell us wh- how, how bad your pain is? Is that what you're referring to?
2: Exactly. What's your pain, 1 to 10? And there became government mandates that you had to check this pain. And it was all, you have to get rid of people's pain. Like, that was the goal. And so you have these new drugs that started to come out that were told that they didn't have a high addiction um, potential and this attention to more pain. And if you look at the any of the graphs, you see that starting in ninety six the amount of opiate prescriptions increased pretty dramatically. And then if you look at this the the same line, the same increase is is for opiate deaths. And so you know there was definitely this this trend, as more prescriptions happened, there were more deaths. Now, the interesting thing, in 2011, the number of prescriptions started to decrease. And the House of Medicine started to decrease these these prescriptions. And and you can look at different specialty fields as far as where they decreased and, and which ones prescribed more. But what then started to happen in 2011 was the use of, these illegally obtained uh, opiates, specifically fentanyl and heroin. And that's really continued to, even though there's not as many prescriptions now, the deaths are continuing and increasing exponentially from year to year.
1: Are we referring to, um, you know, the illegal, going into your, your parents' medicine cabinet and rating that, or are we talking about other means of getting it? Since 2011, in,
2: in that part, it's other means. What happened is the price of heroin and these illegal substances started to really come down, and it became. And doctors were becoming more aware of not prescribing medicine, uh, the, the, the prescription opiates, and so it, based on cost and access, people started to get things illegally, uh, specifically heroin, and then more recently fentanyl.
1: Because those were were cheaper alternatives to deal with the pain versus versus what they might take otherwise. Is that right?
2: Uh, I I wouldn't in some senses the pain, but in other senses just to treat the dependence on the opiates. That you know, not everyone had chronic pain that started to use these. Again, they may have started in, recreationally. recreationally, right? Okay. Not everyone. Broken arm started on these, and then and then it progressed to addiction. And 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 there's a few terms that we probably should define early on in our conversation. Yeah. Because there's basically there's one term called tolerance, And, and tolerance means your body gets used to the same dose, so the same dose does not produce the same effect. The the way opiates work in the body is that something called a mu receptor, which is... That's not as important, but these these receptors change as you use opiates, even whether it's illegal or appropriate or inappropriate. And you actually create something called hyperesthesia, where the same pain stimuli now causes what's perceived as more pain. So, again, we go back to the subjective component of pain. So you cut yourself, and you've never taken opiates before, you might describe your pain as 4 out of 10. But now you're on chronic opiates, you have that same stimuli. The way your body has changed, it might be more 7 out of 10. So, th- so that's tolerance. Dependence is you take away that substance. So you take away the opiate, your body goes through withdrawal symptoms. So that's really dependence. And then there's addiction, and addiction is really when you start to change your behaviors in life. You can no longer hold a job. You steal to to obtain these things. You do other things that are illegal because of your body's dependence and tolerance to the opiates. So those three terms are important to, if I use the terms, I thought it would be important to, you know, yeah, define def- them.
1: definitely. And um, so... With regard to those those three terms, are you, uh, if if you can sort of see that the person's going down this this path, if it's better to to see them where they're at, the intolerance level versus dependence versus going to addiction, is that that always the, you know, kind of catch it while while it's early kind of thing? Is that is that what we're saying? Where um, am I making a false assumption there?
2: No, it isn't uh, um, important because a lot of people that do use opiates, whether for acute pain, you had your knee replacement, you had shoulder surgery, these are very painful conditions. And you might be on opiates, and you might be on them longer than a couple weeks. But when the pain goes away, you stop using them. So you may have developed some tolerance, you may have developed some dependence, but you don't go on to addiction. But a small percentage of those people will go on. The, uh, that is why when you do get opiate and you are treated for pain, one of the most important things is to be treated by one provider. So when people go and, and they go to um, one doctor and then they go to a specialist and they go to another doctor, maybe an emergency department visit, if they get prescriptions from multiple providers, that's where people can run into trouble. And there's um, statistics out there that if you get prescribed opiates from five or more providers, you have a double risk of death. Your, 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 your risk of dying from these opiates goes up twofold. So people that are in pain should get prescribed medicines from one provider.
1: Um, well, are, what are the patients should be obliged to tell the physician, oh, I've already gone to this one or that one, or do they feel like, oh, I wasn't satisfied, therefore I'm going to another person, and are there, like, checks and balances with this? Uh, do, can you somehow access a person's record and find out that they've been, quote, doctor shopping, or what are, what's the legalities of that or privacy? Does that play into it?
2: a pretty interesting and, and relatively new uh, area so most states now have something called a prescription drug monitoring program and these prescription drug monitoring programs allow physicians to go in and look if if someone gives their appropriate name and their appropriate identification to look at that history also more of the electronic medical records which vary to hospitals to, to other places in the state are starting to communicate. And in fact, in Connecticut, the State Medical Society just launched within the past month um, what's called a, a health information exchange to try to link separate computer systems to each other so that physicians are more aware. Many states have started mandatory laws from either you have to have access to these prescription drug monitoring to mandating that if you continue to prescribe, you have to check. The data is, is, these things are very good tools, but there there hasn't been a lot of data that shows there's decreased deaths by mandating doctors to look at these. In my own practice, you start to get a feeling, you look at someone's pattern, you look if their pain is in proportion to what they're explaining, and then you start to you go into these to these systems and you look to see if they have a pattern, and then you try to explain to them that you, you're concerned about their different doctors prescribing and how their death, their risk of mortality goes up, and, and you try to make them plan and educate them. And uh, but one of the hard things that goes into all this is doctors are getting more rated, and their reimbursements are attached to patient satisfaction so you might want to do the best thing for the patient which is not prescribed and to and to tell them that that their their pain is not going to be given treated with opiates and then they get bad scores which can affect their reimbursements and and those are and that's all come from the government as well that that these regulations are being attached to payments and so Seriously?
1: And it's a subjective measure. Oh, well, I don't want like Dr. Schengel because he didn't give me any pain meds. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, that,
2: right. So that's that's another one of these unintended consequences of saying that, you know, where where you want the patient's perspective on how they were treated, but there's no exclusion criteria to those things. And so... Many doctors that that's also you know that they will give a prescription because they don't want to be uh, they don't want to be on Yelp or or, or Tripadvisor or one of these rating systems uh, or on the CMS website as either not being caring or as I said having their their revenue cut because of uh, they perceive as doing the right thing. Wow,
0: you're, so everybody's caught up in this whole spiral and you know, it just seems like the whole medical insurance patient um, experience is chasing their tails. How do we fix this?
2: Mm. Well, I I think that there's not going to be one simple answer because just in the first part of our conversation here, we've talked about complex the whole issue is. So I think that to address it, it's really got to be multifactorial. We need to, put more attention to the prevention, and that's a long-term solution. In the short term, we, there, there's some education that is going out to providers, and I think the state medical society and, and all the specialty organizations are, are producing guidelines so that physicians have a, a standard of care to, to, to practice and go to these education components. But probably in, in the immediate thing is how do we because really what we want to do is reduce these deaths um, and and the answer is in the in the short term, is making available rehab for the people that already are addicted and um, so because many times insurance companies don't have parity, like so if you have addiction as one of your problems. To get into an addiction treatment center, if you can find a bed, you have to get pre-approval from insurance companies, which may or may not approve it, and and those people often spend days in an emergency department waiting for a bed, and then they'd say, you know, forget this. They leave, and then they, and they go out, and they start using again. So I know from the emergency department, we need more access to, to treatment beds. One of the other things we're doing in the emergency department is prescribing people naloxone which is basically the antidote and so we want people that are either using opiates for chronic pain or or even acute pain or people that are addicted they've come to the emergency department and they've survived a heroin overdose We're, we're giving them naloxone which is this antidote which anyone can use and so that if they did use again and they took too much they could be reversed before EMS was able to get there. So those are some of the immediate things we're trying to do to prevent some of these deaths. But the the long-term solutions is to to really educate and not get people to start on it in the first place. Some of that is from prescribing less, but a lot of that is just from culturally not – not using these illegal substances because not everybody started down this pathway from being prescribed opiates.
1: Hmm. Very, very intriguing here. Uh, I know that, um, you know, everyone has their perspective in terms of how they want to weigh in and, and propose solutions. And, our legislators perhaps are not as enlightened as doctors are in terms of what the real focus should be. Um, I know our attorney general is looking into the, you know, manufacturers of of drugs and pharmaceutical companies. Uh, you know, it, it seems like it's a blame game, and is it's not the way it should be. What do you want legislators and other people uh, and the general public to know? Um, you know, in terms of um, not giving an inaccurate per- perspective, and whatever the solutions are that legislators try to do, do you think that they're they're really um, helping at all?
2: I think the attention that legislators and, and government officials are giving to this is very important. It really shines a light, but not every. I know they want to do things but sometimes there's unintended consequences when they pass one law and there's another consequence on the other side. Again, just look at the patient satisfaction issues. I think one thing people should realize is that the United States is 5% of the world's population, but 80% of the prescribed opiates come from the United States. So this is not... A world problem. It really is a U.S. problem. And so it starts in, in one of the, in Connecticut, one of the recent laws that was passed is that patients have the right to say they don't want to take opiates, don't prescribe them to me, and, and that be documented into their medical record. So it really starts with, with the patient not looking for alternatives to control their pain. Anything from, from, certain activities such as yoga or tai chi or, or taking non-narcotic medications, some of them topical, getting into physical therapy. There's many things to try before you start on opiates, and, and the public needs to recognize that. Um, so that, that's one of the real things, I think, is just preventing. Is, the public needs to not expect that there's going to be some magic pill to take away all of their pain, and and then they're going to be better. It just that expectation just needs to be uh, eliminated from from healthcare.
1: Well, that also requires effort and responsibility on the part of the patient, and instead of like you say, looking for the magic pill, and I think a lot of people just aren't aren't used to. To, you know, taking taking uh, full taking ownership of 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 this problem as well, and trying to get themselves well instead of relying on medication. Correct?
2: Absolutely. I mean, there, there's definitely a patient responsibility amongst all this, and I think the other thing is is the government. I, I could tell you, um, I worked working at a hospital where a patient came in with what she was saying was her kidney stone pain. And then we reviewed the chart and it looked like she had been in the emergency department 18 times over the last 26 months for the same pain. And so the doctor rightfully did not give her any opiate. Well, she made a complaint to the department of public health who then investigated the doctor and the hospital for not managing the patient's pain correctly. And so these Providers really should be given gold stars and kudos for addressing these things and and not just uh, overly prescribing. But you get a mixed message when you're getting investigated because you're saying, well, you took care of this patient's pain this way and not this person's pain. And so there's got to be some flexibility to the provider to try to make what's the best decision And and that's got to be a discussion between the patient and the provider. And so many times now, whether it's the government or the insurance agencies, they interfere with that patient-doctor relationship so that they can have a discussion on what the best course of treatment is. Wow. Uh, Now,
1: with regard to... Um, drug manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies. I mean, I think people have this idea, and I know I've sat in a doctor's office and the pharmaceutical rep comes in there with boxes of pizza and say, "Hey, I'm stopping by to, you know, to show you my latest drugs, and here's lunch for all of your staff," and so the doctor feels um, pressure to you know um listen to this person and oh is that the true sense that part of this is where it's going wrong is is that are we blaming are we blaming the wrong people and should be should the focus be on changing things at the manufacturing level at the sales level as well what's going on there
2: well it wasn't it, i it's not my area of expertise because in the emergency department we we don't really we're sort of limited a lot of times to what's on formula at the hospital. And so we don't have samples that we give out. So that's yeah. um, not my area of expertise, but I certainly at in primary care offices, I am aware that drug reps come in and, and they try to educate and sometimes it's very good. And sometimes it's not one thing that I've, I personally have less uh, of a time understanding is this direct to patient, Advertising. If you've looked over the last 10 or 15 years, how many pharmaceutical commercials are on TV that talk about, like, ask your doctor about this med, ask your doctor oh, yeah. about that med. And I mean, there, there should be, because a physician should be aware of new medications that come out. They should be able to have a discussion with the patient on the cost benefit of, of this. I mean, are they equivalent? And look at that literature. And sometimes the drug companies are a good source of, of knowledge to the physician. But to to this direct to consumer advertising, just seems to me not an area where, it's it's helpful. Um, so I, you know, that that is definitely one of the um, things that that can probably be decreased. Now I don't see a, a lot of, prescri- uh, for pain. Um, and the new opiates because many of those are generic at this point and just they make sort of less money on them now. So, um, you know, but at the beginning I know there was a big issue, uh, you know, the the makers of OxyContin, I think they've already paid a settlement in somewhere around 2011 because they were saying it wasn't addictive and clearly it it was, Um, similar Mm -hmm. to the tobacco companies. But well, uh ultimately do they just
1: kind of pay a fine and pay a fine and move on from there. Kind of thing, slap on the wrist.
2: I think it was a pretty uh, uh I think it was it was quite a a big uh it was I I I don't remember the exact number of what the fi- the uh the fine was, but it it, it was a pretty big Oh, uh, I think in 2007, Purdue pleaded guilty a false marketing and paid a $635 million fine.
1: Wow. So, $635 million. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's
2: I, a- I don't know if that's a slap on the wrist or not. I, I guess I don't know how much money they made overall. Um, but, uh, you know, they were saying it wasn't addictive and clearly it was, but it, it's, um, I, I, I think at this point, you know, it's, it's just like the tobacco companies. Everybody knows that, Opiates are um, addictive, and and physicians should have that conversation with the patient. Hey, you're in a lot of pain. I'm going to give you this medicine, but you need to be concerned. You know, when you don't have pain, and that's why going back to the same provider to get the prescriptions is so important, so that they're not going to a different provider, especially when you're on need these for uh, everyday living. And, and you get into more of chronic pain from acute pain. It's And and they shouldn't expect to come to the emergency department because they ran out of their medicine and someone else to write their prescription until their doctor's there. So that that's clearly an area, if you look at all the guidelines that are coming up from state to state, and here in Connecticut, we passed guidelines from the emergency department that were uh, also endorsed by the Connecticut State Medical Society, and the Connecticut Hospital Association, as far as uh, rules and guidelines for prescribing medicines, opiate medicines in the emergency department, is we will not refill these long acting uh, opiates for patients. Um, and, we, and we're not going to, we, we don't treat exacerbations with shots and IV versions of the medicines. And so we have these guidelines out there. They're not policies, but they're, they're an effort to educate our members not to use opiates all the time, especially be careful. And you can There are definitely risk factors to identify of who's at risk of dying. Some of it is how much of an opiate they use and which version they use. Other ones are whether there are other prescriptions. People that use a class of drugs called benzodiazepines, which people might know as clonopin or Valium, or uh, xanax if you're taking that with opiates your risk of death goes up and so physicians need to know hey i can't prescribe this medicine because you're on that medicine and again that's all easier if you go to one provider
1: right but invariably with some people they just kind of say okay that's fine walk out the door i'm going to go to another doctor and see if that other person will uh it's just a morass of uh, of challenges here, and I can't imagine how how long typically do you for people that don't visit ER uh, uh, very often. Um, I had the I had the pleasure this last week with a with a stomach flu, and um, uh, they treated me well. But I'm just in terms of um, it, when somebody comes in for a visit, and you're in the ER, and there's tons of other people. Do they uh, in your triage, which means kind of making a priority list of who should be seen first um where where do where do um people that need opiates fall on the, on the triage line if somebody comes in and how long are you able to spend with them versus other things in your setting?
2: You know every patient's an individual, so um the n- nurses use a Triage um, system, which looks into, you know, to one extent, vital signs, including their pain. Um, there are government rules that, like, if you have a broken bone, you're supposed to get uh, pain medicines within an hour, and, and that is tracked by some other things. But every patient is, is triaged separately, and, and every emergency physician and, and the rest of the staff, you know, including mm. the emergency nurses and the techs they go to work every day uh, trying to see as many patients and do what's right for patients. And none of them go to work saying, I want to be mean to this patient or I want to treat this patient incorrectly. And so they're doing the best jobs they can to see people as soon as possible. And and certainly triage comes into play when there's more patients than there are providers. And so – I, I would say everyone, is, is it's a different assessment. So I can't tell you it's like one rule that, that someone needs, but someone comes in with a really bad kidney stone and they need some pain medicine, you know, they're, they're going to be seen as, as soon as possible. But a lot of it depends if there was, um, you know, a recent a bunch of traumas. Uh, what You just don't know what else is going on at that time. And so it, it can be quite variable.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I can understand. I mean, everyone just has to use their best judgment and use the, the medical protocols available. But um, I I think if we talk a little bit also with regard to the fact that this, this crisis, this epidemic has its roots in uh, sort of uh, an evolution of cultural behavior. I know in preparing for this show over time, we had talked about, you know, the the acceptance of alcohol, and now we're going into the, uh, you know, marijuana kind of thing. Let's let's touch on those kinds of things. Is this another step in the progression, uh, in of acceptance by, by by the public in terms of what the media puts out there? What what is the situation if you look at it historically, and what what should they be telling the public as opposed to what they are telling the public?
2: I think certainly the idea that you can take some substance which is not prescribed to you, whether it's for recreation or you're self-medicating, is, is, is certainly a cultural thing. And so alcohol is legal if you're over 21. Many states are talking about recreational marijuana I mean it, you're right it's all in the same spectrum and so you might not die acutely of taking marijuana but it certainly is part of a pattern um where you know we you take a substance to try to get for, for some purpose and so it's it's um I find it hard to say that having this conversation where we say we want to limit one substance but want to expand another substance, it just seems to me a very – it's a conversation filled with, um, you know, differences that, that really I, – I just don't understand why we're doing that. So it, it's not that marijuana is going to be good or going to be bad, and everyone can debate It's its – Effects on the human body. I personally think that the the new marijuanas and the potencies that they have are much more deleterious than the marijuana from 20, 30 years ago. And so I think there's, and you can see that car accident rates and and just productivity, it, it all goes down in these states that have increased use of it, even if that's how they will try to balance their budgets in the state with taxpayer dollars by, by taxing Yeah.
1: Increasing revenue by, you know, having marijuana growers. I mean, I know, I know um, they, they say that it's very prolific in uh, Colorado, but I I don't know. I don't know that I would, I haven't, I haven't personally experienced that, but I do have a relative that's living there and I'd be curious to ask her, you know, just what, what, the differences are, you know, between that kind of a, quote, lifestyle and, and what we have here. Um, but, but there might
2: be other costs to society. I know, I, a number I read as i involved with all of this opiate discussion is the total cost, not just the direct care, but all of the other costs, is that the societal cost in 2013 from opiate use was $78.5 billion. I mean, it, it, wow. that's definitely. Pretty big number you know of of loss you know if someone dies they're no longer going to pay taxes if they're in addiction you know the insurance companies are going to be paying for that I mean there's so many different avenues of where this affects um, the the economy you know there and and as much as it, the num- most recent numbers there's about two and a half million Americans that have some sort of dependence on the opioid. so it's it certainly the scope is 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 very large.
1: Um, well, well, let's let's talk about that a little specifically in terms of the demographic, because we're saying it affects everybody. Um, but is there? A t- I mean, the ones we see we we read about in the newspapers or whatnot are typically the. Millennials, or you know those, you know these kids that are in college or whatever, and and it's the cool thing to do, and and these are the people that are getting the press in terms of dying, but actually, can can is is there is there a generalized profile in terms of gender, age, uh, g- geography, in terms of uh, all of these sudden deaths that are occurring, and just. You know, just enormous numbers that that we're having to deal with um, uh, now more than ever. Is is there any generalized statements you can say, or are you saying it's just individual in terms of who shows up and or who may die?
2: You know, if you go back to before '96, opiate deaths were definitely a phenomenon that was more in the cities and in um, in in the minority populations, but I think right now the data is showing that it's um, becoming more of Caucasians um, that are dying, as well as it's coming out of the cities and, and actually increasing in the rural areas. And as far as male and females, the the trends are also um, increasing in both genders so um probably a little bit faster in in males but it's definitely going up in females as well and so um it 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 really at this point i would say it it, i think delilah said it when we started this which is it's crossing all social economics it's not just in the urban centers it it really is um diffused throughout the country
1: Wow. Um, yeah, it, it is so very tragic. Um, with re, with regard to someone that may come in and you follow your protocol and they're not, you're not placing them on um, these opiates. Do you happen to have a, a a human story that you can share with us with regard to a success story of uh, someone who may have been addicted, and then you are able to kind of turn things around, or um, you know, something where we we can can see that there may be a light at the end of the tunnel if we can change the collective mindset on this issue.
2: The Connecticut one of the at the Alcohol Drug Policy Committee, one of the things that has started as a pilot here in Connecticut is there's an organization called CCAR, um, and I, I apologize, I don't know exactly what the, the, their acronym stands for, but it, it's a group of people, many of whom were previously involved with addiction, who now are available as counselors. They come to the emergency department when we have um, a patient that is willing to hear about their options, and they talk to the patient, and they are getting them into these treatment beds, um and then they if they don't go directly from the emergency department, they're going home, and they're following up on these people. Now wow. the data isn't out yet that that you know we're we're saving lives, but these people, once they get access to these treatment facilities, are many times staying with treatment, even though there is a certain rate of recidivism. I mean, there's there's many other things. More people are getting into what's called MAT or medically-assisted treatment, and there are some emergency departments throughout the country that are starting those in communities where they have treatment beds. So a medicine like Suboxone, they'll give them the first couple doses in the emergency department, and within 72 hours, they're following up in treatment beds. And the data is that these people are staying in treatment longer and, and then not dying when they're in those treatments. So it's a little – some people are – one of the big things I think that has hampered our um, efforts in addressing this is the stigma that is a um, assigned to addiction because of these old uh, – uh, stereotypes of of who was there and the person has complete control and if they just wanted to stop they would just stop. And I think some of the efforts recently have been to destigmatize these uh addictions and 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 the terminology now is going into use disorder. So someone has an opiate use disorder and you know, in the medical sense, they're addicted, but not calling them an addict and then and then trying to marginalize them in society. And so that, that's been some of the general um, benefits. But I, I've seen, I, I can tell you, I, I saw a University of Connecticut student that was in engineering and basically was found by his girlfriend after he took a test and he was not breathing. And, you know, he had had a heroin overdose and when he came fortunately he was given narcan early on and uh but when he came in and we were checking him because of his lack of breathing he had damage to his heart and his liver from anoxic uh injury and so Mm -hmm. i mean this is it's happening at the universities it's happening in the cities i've seen it in all the different places that that i've worked and so um it the, the goal of whatever we do should really be how do we reduce deaths? And we shouldn't be doing things, even if, if the legislators want to do them, that don't ultimately reduce deaths. We shouldn't make barriers and, and other things just to, just to make ourselves feel good that we're doing something. And really all of the targets really should be, is this going to decrease deaths from opiates?
1: Well can you give us a couple of examples of that like this particular measure may sound good but it really doesn't doesn't help in in the real sense of the word and uh you know what what are some of these things that are you know myths that you're having to to deal with every day in terms of visiting the ER or what the legislators may be doing, can you can talk a little bit about the barriers? We have about ten, just to let you know we have about ten minutes left to our show um, right now. So uh, just wondering, what what kind of things are making it more difficult um, for for you to for you to do your job, and how do we reduce the deaths in your opinion?
2: Well, again, I think. The short-term reduction of deaths really has to be to making sure there's more Narcan out there, so that understand people are going to use and just have that out there for the time being. It's sort of almost like the big push where we had AEDs in all sorts of of areas, and so that should be um, able to be obtained through, you know, pharmacies actually can prescribe it without even a doctor's prescription now, and and just increasing that presence. I think the big thing is is the treatment beds. We really need to make sure insurance companies and the state make available treatment beds so when someone is ready for treatment, there's a bed for them to go to. In the long term, I think trying to blame physicians, that this is all related from physicians, is going to have more deleterious effects because, it, it real as I said early on. Even though many people started with prescription medicine, only 20% of those were that person was prescribed those medicines. They're getting them from other people. So just going after doctors and telling them that they need to to prescribe less and not treat. We're going to end up on the other side of the pendulum with a lot of people that need medicines not having them. So I, I think. Um, and then, And then forcing them to to do all sorts of uh, checking here and checking there they they have to have the flexibility to to treat people and and to not treat people and then they should not be investigated or looked into when they when they 're not treating people appropriately um, and and we really need to get this patient satisfaction and pain control out of any type of reimbursement um, measures you know from from all payers but specifically from medicare
1: that that seems incredible that 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 those issues would be tied to reimbursement and that the patient would ultimately direct be the bus driver here where it it all depends on whether they say oh this doctor was great or this doctor was not i mean come on they're not doctors It's just incredible to me
2: if you look, There has been a lot of attention recently on physician wellness, and I think one of the things that is causing physician burnout, um, because if you look at physicians, they actually have a higher suicide rate than the general public, and one of the reasons, I think, has been the erosion of the physician's opinion. Like, physicians are highly trained. They've done medical school. They've done residency. They do continuous medical education, and when they have an opinion on on something that's going on, it seems like in society that opinion, whether it's talking to legislators or talking to hospitals or talking to patients, carries less weight. And I think a lot of physicians are are frustrated that they have to do things by rules and regulations rather than doing the things based on the patient-doctor relationship and what's best for the patient.
0: Yeah, uh,
1: it, it, I just have ultimate respect for what you you have to contend with, and I was brought up by in in hospitals my whole childhood, and I have nothing but good things to say with regard to that. But the pressures are totally different now. Um, with regard to, um, I know we may have touched on this off air. Um, in our area, we're struggling because we do not have a state budget yet, and our medical examiner's office is totally being inundated. We had something like 1,200 deaths over a period of um, a couple of years here, and they just cannot get to all of these increased deaths fast enough. They don't have enough medical examiners. But yet, I just heard on the news this morning that sort of the staff cap measure is that we've been—they've been able to purchase more refrigerators for people that put in a holding pattern. And what does that say about this whole issue, Greg?
2: I, I think, like we've said, it, it, it certainly shows it's, it's, it's a, affecting multiple areas of our society. And we we are starting to recognize the problem. The Emmy's office is a huge resource to identifying what the problem is and looking at it's important to understand the people that unfortunately are victims of an opiate overdose, because that will hopefully maybe lead to some of where the solutions are going to be able to be uh, most effectively uh, applied. So if we don't understand who the victims are, we're definitely, we're going to just be creating solutions that ultimately aren't going to reduce deaths. And so I think, um, we need that data from the me and and it's just one other component of the state budget i guess in connecticut that 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 you know is is everybody needs their their piece of the pie but but certainly right. i don't think we're going to get to the solution if we don't understand what the problem is
0: yeah how
1: how much interaction have you had in, in working on your various committees and whatnot with regard to families um who are victims of this if, they're, you know, have, have, uh, if their, their loved ones have passed on because of this. And I know being past president of the uh, um, Medical Society or Emergency Room Physicians, I believe, you, you, you must have come across this. What, what has been your experience in working with families who have experienced this?
2: We, we actually have a few family members on the Alcohol Drug Policy Committee, and and their perspective is very important because I think many of them will tell you I had no idea. I can't believe it happened to me. You know, I wasn't expecting this. And so for parents out there, certainly looking and understanding um, because it, it, it really can happen over all ages. But I think we really need to decrease the youth's exposure to opiates. And so, you know, when, when, when kids, you know, have broken bones or teeth extracted, using non-opiate pain management might be the most important thing at that age because if you just like many other substances, if you don't smoke when you're young, if you don't drink when you're young, you tend not to do it as you go through life. And you can re- if, you, if you've never taken that first opiate, it, the chance, of going on to addiction is reduced a thousand fold. And so I think we really need to focus on, on the young people and, and not doing it. And so the the families that I've spoke to, you know, really are, are interested, at least in, in the fields that I've crossed, you know, of, of not having that first exposure.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, what, what role should the media be playing in this? I mean, couldn't they, couldn't they have a large role in terms of trying to accurately portray? Or, you know, I think of that old concept years ago um, in in prisons and crime. You know, they called it scared straight. Is that is that sort of an approach that you think could be effective with with this issue?
2: I think getting the accurate information out there is is going to be the most important thing, and not always trying to find the person to blame, because. You know, many times it seems like the, the stories they tell. It's like, well, it, this person had it because of this person, you know, and, and this is who to blame. And and sometimes it's just sort of a fact that the, that the Soviet epidemic is there. It's certainly leading to twice the amount of deaths that that guns cause. And so, um, but these are important. The, the the medicines are important to some people. Certainly the heroin and the fentanyl are not, um, but they just need to really be accurate in what they're describing and shine a light on it, but not always mm-hmm. look for, you know, it, it's, it's such a complex problem to try to, mini, to simplify it and just cause, you know, the doctors are at fault or the, the insurance companies are at fault or the pharmaceuticals are at fault. I think, really simplifies it, and, and we're never going to get to the answers if, if we simplify it in those ways.
1: Right. Well, as we're winding down here, my my final question would be, I would kind of circle back to what Delilah was saying with, with our friend here who has legitimate chronic pain issues. Do you, do you have any particular advice for those people who have to contend with that and don't want to be labeled a doctor shopper? What should they do?
2: Well, I think the thing is they shouldn't shop doctors. They should get their pain medicines from one provider. That yeah. that provider should be educated in providing it. Before you go to opiates, you try everything else. But if you need to do opiates, you follow the the best practices, which is you get them from one provider. You um, you Get drug tested regularly, the provider should do that to make sure that you aren't taking additional substances. You watch what your co prescriptions are and and there is a way to safely prescribe chronic opiates, but both the patients and the providers need to be aware of of those ways. but you shouldn't be getting prescriptions from three, four, or five different providers,
1: right. That's, that's the kiss of death right there, as you, as you had alluded to. Well, unfortunately, our hour has, um, has ended here, but I want to invite you to come back. you have um, information in the future with regard to update or some, some uh, things that are going on, you have an open invitation to come back to Shattered Life, okay? Um, Greg?
2: I will definitely continue the conversation.
1: Well, I, I think that's wonderful and I, I thank you so much. I think we've learned a lot and we're gonna share this information. Delilah, do you have some parting thoughts here at all?
0: Well, I just wanna thank uh Dr. Schengel for joining us today and and imparting yeah. all of this important information. It it needs to be out in the public in a big way.
1: Absolutely, and we'll we'll do our best to, to try to circulate it. Among the people that we know and hope you will So thank you so much again Greg will uh, keep in touch with me And with with that We will end another edition Of uh, Shattered Lives Radio Until next Saturday Everyone be well And uh, we'll see you next week Thank you Greg Thank you Delilah